Hello, and welcome to the Literati Cast. I'm Jennifer Lofrin, and I'm a senior agent at Andrea Brown Literary Agency, specializing in children's books from picture books through YA. On this podcast, I get together with my friends in the publishing industry and dish about all things kids' book related. Today, I am very excited that I have as my guest the brilliant Meg Medina. She is the author of numerous books, including picture books, YA novels, and middle grade. Her latest middle grade novel, Mercy Suarez Changes Gears, was published in the fall of 2018 by Candlewick Press. It's a New York Times bestseller, and in January, it received the Kids Book World's highest honor, this year's Newbery Medal. Let me see if I can get Meg on the line. Hi, Meg. Hey. So first of all, congratulations on all the success of Mercy Suarez, including the Newbery Award. So amazing and (laughs) well-deserved. Thank you very much. Although I promised not to talk about the call, so we will skip that question. (laughs) So first, can you tell me uh, your nutshell origin story? Um, Yeah. I mean, I think I've always sort of leaned toward writing, but I tried to do every other thing um, before I actually sat down and became a children's book author. I was a teacher for years. I was a part-time journalist. I wrote marketing materials for schools. I, I did every kind of almost writing um, that I could think of. And I think I was just scared. But um, really, when I turned to writing was the, the year that I turned 40. I was working at a school. I was really unhappy. I was doing their marketing materials. Terrific school, great people. But it just wasn't what I wanted to be doing. And I don't know, I think it was just the combination of turning 40 and sitting in a little office that had been the janitor's closet, literally, and just asking myself, if I don't do this now, when when am I going to do it? Um, so I just turned to writing in a very uh, abrupt way. <laughs> I just got up, I quit my job, and then I came home and I told Javier, my husband, guess what? I quit my job. I'm going to write a novel. Um, and I just didn't look back. It was, I was fortunate that I had, I was in a partnership with someone who could float us for a little while until I could make some money to feed us. Um, but it was a very abrupt sort of turn to writing. That's really inspiring, I think, because a lot of people are convinced that you have to be, you know, fresh out of college or 21 years old or something to be a writer. And that's just so not true, but it's hard to, um, get people to realize that that this is something you don't have to be a youth. Well, you know, I I'll say this, there are moments in my life that I wish I had started earlier. Um, that I, that I wish I, I just had more years in front of me, you know, in terms of, of writing, um, works for kids. But the truth is that what would I have had to say at 21? I don't know what I would have said. Maybe something very important and appropriate for that time, but, I think in my own case, I needed to live a little bit and um, deepen uh, yeah. in my experiences to really have something to say. And it's, you know, it's, it comes with some, some joy to, to think that I really started on this journey after I was 40. I was not a, a young, young person. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know. We have these these feelings that <laughs> we have to do everything when we're young and vital and you know at the beginning of everything, but I think the secrets in the long game, right? You got to take the long view on things. And what do you want your life to look like? And how do you want to be interesting over your lifetime, not just when you're young? 
Well, and I don't know about you, but when I was 21, I was very stupid. (laughs) (laughs) I was stupid about a lot of things, too. Thank God we changed. That's the thing. Oh, now we're brilliant. (laughs) Now we're really smart women. But uh, yeah, thank God we change and we we learn. uh, We change our minds about things. We deepen. We become more aware of others. I, I don't know. Thank God for time. (laughs) <laughs> so today I want to talk about world building and realistic fiction. So this mm. is something that people always talk about this in terms of fantasy and science fiction, yes. but it is important in realistic fiction too. And you do such a good job of it. Something that really strikes me when I was rereading Mercy Suarez is how you great you are at not just sensory details, but like specificity of sensory details. Mm-hmm. Like not just that it's humid, but how that humidity affects mercy specifically. So <laughs> yeah. is this the sort of thing that happens organically or do you like on purpose weave these kind of specific details of place in? Well, I feel like that's how memory works generally, right? So when I'm thinking back to growing up, like my mother went through this fetish of covering all of our furniture in plastic. (laughs) And so she was convinced, I I think it was in vogue back then, but it was a very big deal when my mother was able to afford a couch and then she wanted to protect it from us, her two animal-like daughters, right, from crawling all over and spilling stuff on it. So she promptly went and had plastic slip covers made. So what I remember about the plastic slip slip covers. It's not just that they were hideous and on this green sofa, but what it felt like to sit on them in the summer and then you sweat would pool under you. And then <laughs> that, that Velcro separation sound when you had to get up quickly and how your <laughs> legs had those red burns on them. And, and that's how I remember that sofa. And I think that's how we remember a lot of things, right. That sort of stay clawed in, in our brain. So when I'm writing, I feel like that's the most efficient way to create the reality, the little details um, that are really true in that moment. Otherwise, you do a lot of description, and and it it feels very superficial. It's it's really in in how it impacts the person in that moment that um, that's interesting. Absolutely. You may hear some squeaky toys. I just want to tell you that my dog, Hugo, is trapped in this study with me. And um, he has found his favorite loud toy. And he's <laughs> running away from me as I edge to the, to the limit of these headphones. <laughs> Get to him. He's like, no, I will be squeaking. So <laughs> that's fine. just so you know. My dog is locked out of this room, but you might hear barking later. You were very smart. Um. So I get a lot of queries in general for books with large cast of characters, like huge sprawling families or schools with a bunch of different cliques. And a lot of times it's hard to keep straight who's who. But um, Mercy has a large cast between her family and her school friends, and it's never a problem keeping track of everyone. How do you build a large cast in a book in a way that isn't overwhelming? Yeah. Well, and, and of course, I'm going to say the disclaimer is that you're reading it after my editor and I have looked at it for a long time. So every once in a while, I do have to collapse some characters, like characters who are, have the same function in the manuscript. And you love them, right? You've given them two different names and, and so on, but, but they really serve the same purpose or they have very similar personalities and so on. And so at moments like that, I do collapse them. But I think, 
when I'm writing, I start with the main character. In this case, I, I start with Mercy. And then I start to populate, like, who is in her world? I literally build it. So who does she live with? Who's her friend? Like, all of those basic questions. And as I am thinking of all the spaces that she's going to move through, so who's at school? Who are the characters who are really important in school? So, of course, the headmaster has to be there. And you need the pain in the neck secretary. You need a favorite teacher. You need the teacher who's, you know, an idiot. And you need um, the kids who that she'll find comfort in. And you'll need the nemesis. So I know that those people have to be there. And I start to build them. Sometimes as I'm writing, you know, a, a name will come up or I'll mention someone really briefly. And then as I'm writing, I just deepen them. Um, but it, a lot of it is world building. And my belief is that um, every character that, what is the adage that actors always use? You know, there are no small parts, only small actors. So if I'm going to give a character any scene time, any page time, so to speak, make it worth it. I, I want to let them shine. And the way they shine is through their idiosyncrasies. So as I'm building these characters, I think, what's the weirdest thing about this person? What's the most notable <laughs> thing? And not just physical, but what are their tics, their personality tics, their, the, the things that are likely to trip them up, the things people notice about them, the things their friends would roll their eyes behind their back lovingly <laughs> about this person. And I let that populate them. So I, I don't know, it's just a, a loving sort of building of, of each character and really giving them not only a job in the manuscript from the writer's perspective, but a job in the main character's life, a role in that life and really writing the little details, the nitty gritty that makes us love that character. Or at well, least speaking of them. that, mm. I love the men in Mercy's life, her um, brother, her dad, finally. her grandfather. <laughs> it could be said that some of your previous books, Meg, have not been terribly flattering for tales of the males among us. I understand. What was different this time? I understand. That's really true. That is really true. So um, first of all, I'm going to say that I grew up mostly with women. Um my dad was out of the picture early. My uncle, unfortunately, passed away, and my grandfathers did early in my life as well. So I was raised by a group of strong, eccentric, fearful, neurotic women, and they were wonderful. And so when I'm writing, I often write very focused on on the female. I'm very interested in that. And the men's stories that I've written previously certainly look at um, difficult men and the difficulties that they present in, in the um, character's life. Although I would say that in Burn Baby Burn, I also give Nora Lopez um, ample access to healthy men, not just her arsonist of a brother and her absent dad. So in medicine, I, I don't have a brother. I didn't grow up with my dad and my grandfather was dead. But I did grow up in this big um, family. I was very interconnected with aunts and uncles and um, when he was living with cousins. And it was just um, everybody interfering, everybody knowing your business. It was just, um, it was bigger than the typical American concept of family, mother, father, and children. So I just wanted to write 
a healthy family. I just wanted to give this family that loves each other and that's basically whole in there um, a problem that they would have to face and solve together, but from a healthy perspective. Mm. So my previous books don't really have that, right? They have injury. They have a lot of injury. They have a lot of um, trauma that people are trying to build out of. This family is also facing hardship, but they're not, um, they're not broken in the same way. And some of that decision was because I was writing for younger children. I was writing for children ages, you know, nine to 12. And um, I, I wanted the book to be a little more buoyant than my other books had been. I, I was harboring the secret desire, Jennifer, to be funny. Right. Mm. So I'm, I, <laughs> it kind of funny. I have to say in person, I can be really funny. And, and my, in my novels, I'm often very somber and I wanted to be buoyant this time. I wanted to, the book to match how I felt when I was 11 and 12, um, which was often, you know, in the delight of being a kid, playing kickball, arguing with your friend, racing, that kind of thing. And then boom, you hit a roadblock or something really big happens in the family. And then in the next minute, it's funny and light again. That's the world of somebody who's 10, 11, 12. And that's what I was trying to recreate. Well, I think you were very successful. (laughs) So without spoilers, without any spoilers in the story, Mercy feels hurt because her family keeps a big secret from her. I wonder if the topic of family secrets comes up as you talk to young readers and how you handle that. Yeah. You know, nobody has asked me specifically, but I, I do get kids who tell me um, how much they love their grandparents. And, and now of course, grandparents are occupying a, an unprecedented role for lots of reasons in kids' lives. But often we see grandparents raising their kids now. Mm-hmm. Um, and I see that. I see that they really love their grandparents if they know them and so on. They sometimes will share the frustrations they have or the, you know, the eccentricities of their own grandparents, grandma <laughs> and grandpa. Um, and that's been fun. Kids are often though, more interested in the Edna storyline, you know, that the, the <laughs> they, they just want her to get her just desserts. They, <laughs> they, they, <laughs> they're just delighted uh, that she's going to get hers, you know? Um, and, and I think they appreciate the ability to laugh. Like they don't mind. I find that kids when they're reading, they don't mind the sad stuff. If you could also give them plenty of room to laugh and to recuperate. Yes, absolutely. Um, So we've been talking a lot about Mercy Suarez, obviously, which is a middle grade, but you also write picture books and YA books as well. You've proved to be just as adept at all three categories, which is pretty outstanding. Um, Can we talk about voice? How do you calibrate voice for different age categories? Yeah. Well, it's probably like, well, do you acquire all, all different age levels yourself as an agent? Yeah, absolutely. And I have authors that write multiple groups, yeah. you know. Yeah. And so it's probably the same sort of thing, it, meaning like I, when I'm writing different, all right, so I'm trying to, I'm really trying to back up and really give you the honest answer. So the first thing is the story always dominates, right? So the thing is, let's say the Aisa wants a car, which was my, my first picture book. Mm-hmm. That actually wouldn't have made a bad middle grade novel 
it would have been really funny. I would have had good cast members. I had a lot of people that I could um, call on, like the guy in the in the uh, used parking lot. Like they were, it, it could have been a really good novel. But what did I want to do with that book? And I was really thinking back on it, and I was thinking, no, I really. I want like the joy that just that joy of what it felt like when our family first got a car in the United States, this thing that took us off the bus and it was big. And I had really no notion that it was like a jalopy, but you know, it was a big heap. Um, (laughs) And so I just wanted to capture that. And um, in, I, I picked picture book for the emotion that I wanted. And because I myself was pretty young when we got our first family car. And so I wanted to inhabit what that's like when you're six. Um, if I were writing that story for, you know, they got the car when she's 12, maybe she does know that it's a jalopy and now she's embarrassed by the car. And now she's really irritated with her uncle for saying that they can't buy the car. You know, you, it just different ages give us different um, perspectives on the same thing. So for example, if I say to you a first kiss, right. Mm -hmm. Um, What would that look like if it happened to you when you were six, if you were 11, if you were 17. Right. And, and that's a really good exercise to do. I think it just shows you like, how we come to the same thing with a different self, right? And that's really at the core of calibrating voice, I think, for kids when we're writing for them. You have to inhabit that age, and you have to really see it purely through that lens. I think books that aren't successful to me in terms of getting the voice right for the age are those that confuse those things. Mm. Um, and you can give a kid an adult thing that happens, the death of, of someone, a cancer, you know, you could give horrible things can happen, but it needs to happen and be received and, and be processed from that age. And that's the thing you have to truly, truly be honest to. I think, I mean, what do you think when you're, when you're acquiring, like, are there moments where you think, well, this is definitely not middle grade, even though the author thinks so. Like, how do you, how do you have that conversation? Cause I find that really hard. I, I have students well, at Hamlin and, and I, sometimes when you're trying to explain to them why something doesn't fit, it's, it's a hard conversation. Oh, absolutely. That? I mean, it's, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I have sometimes experienced things where, you know, the, it's also to do with other things as well, like length of the book, mm-hmm. literally length. Right. So if you give me a 300 page long book that is supposed to be for six and seven year olds, <laughs> that's a problem. Sure. I can't, I can't do that. So, you know, all those things have to match, have to sort of match together. I don't know how else to say it. Like, does the voice sound authentically like a seven year old? Is the vocabulary and the ideas and the themes authentically seven and the way that they react to those things authentically seven and is the actual physical book the length of it and the length of the chapters and the all that stuff does that work for that audience Mm. so sometimes it's like okay actually you need to make this a 13 year old (laughs) and reimagine how the voice is or hey all this is great but cut 200 pages yeah (laughs) 
<laughs> oh, Jennifer, Jennifer, Jennifer. <laughs> Maybe this is a trilogy. I don't know. Yeah. Oh, anyway. I um, know. So, so many imponderables. You, absolutely. Do you find it easy to switch from one category of book to another? How do you decide what's next? Oh, you know, who knows? I, I do. I find it easy. I think that sometimes the idea just appears. Like I, I have a picture book coming out next year um, that that came to me sort of qu- I, I had been thinking of my first childhood friend for a long time um, and the nature of that and, and what happens when kids have to move away from each other and they're little and they're going to miss their friend. Um, and that just came as a picture book very quickly. And I was in the middle of, of still working on mercy. So, um, I'm not one that often writes multiple things at the same time. I do have friends who can do that. And I just think they're sick, crazy people. <laughs> I, I don't know how you do it. Like, how do you start on Monday in like the voice of a 17 year old and then take a break and become 11 for two days and then six <laughs> for another day and then 70? I, I would end up hospitalized. So <laughs> I, I think I need it. Like, I really prefer to do a deep dive into the world of the book that I'm writing for a, mm-hmm. a while. Sometimes with picture book, there's an exception because I will go, like I find picture book writing somewhat restful. It's poetic. It's, it's shorter. It's, it's about image. I just find it emotionally more restful than writing novels. And so sometimes one will slip in there, but usually I just do a deep dive one at a time and I just become that voice. Now, when it's time for me to go to a totally different voice, I go to friends. I just, I stand in front of my bookshelf. I look at what's being published, who's got new books out. And I just enjoy myself as a reader for a little while. And I read that age group um, and just reacquaint myself with the tempo and the um, sentence length and the the feel of the book and the size of the type and, and all of that. Just it's a total sort of immersion. And, you know, that's such a joy for me because I don't know what your to be red pile looks like. I can only imagine, but mine is ridiculous. It's ridiculous. I never feel like I get through them. I, I carry around guilt. If, if I've had someone's galley for like six months and I still haven't read it, I, I you know, I want to run upon a sword. It's just, uh, but yeah, um, I can't even honestly talk about it. It's terrifying. Yeah, I know. It gives you hives, does it not? It's terrible. <laughs> and so I, I'm trying and trying and trying to keep up. But, but when I, I'm switching um, age groups and I get to write and just dig in, that feels like just a joy. Like I have a built-in excuse to just sit on my sofa and read for hours and hours and hours. I love that. Me too. Mm. But I don't get that very often. Uh, How do you balance the business part of this career and the artistic part? Mm, I'm wrestling with it right now, especially right now, because, um, because winning a big award changes so many things virtually instantaneously. Right. And so, um, I how how so? I mean, well, I have not had that pleasure. So yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry. That is all right. So he, the suddenly there are many many more requests for your time, um, and and your uh, appearances and travel. And I already travel a great deal. So to see it get even busier um, with the demands seems um, 
seems daunting. The number of emails is just the the amount of interaction that has nothing to do with you writing, right? It's all of the public stuff. And then, um, if the, and then of course, factoring in social media and websites and et cetera, et cetera. All of that um, has, so for now I, I had to hire a part-time assistant, which I hadn't had before. And, um, you know, having phone calls where I'm touching base with like the, the key people, my publisher, my agent, like just to keep on top of the number of details that, that start to happen. Um, so if you had any feelings of inadequacy before, <laughs> they go, Dang! you know, right, right through the ceiling. It's just crazy. Like not about the writing, but just about your ability to maneuver through this gracefully and still have time and quiet and stillness inside of you to write the books that you want to write, because it's very easy to get pulled into all the shiny, right. Of, of mm-hmm. things like this. And also, frankly, you know, the, the, the darker, more, um, troublesome parts, right. Like the dust ups that happen and the, the disagreements and so on, like all of those things threaten your time, um, right. writing. And that I feel is a challenge. So I'm, I'm working on it, but I, there are two different sides to me. And I'm, what I'm really trying to do now is figure out a way to protect at least three hours a day of, of writing time, three hours where I do not respond to email or interact with others or do anything like that, that it's really about my creative time, whether it's that I'm working on a draft or I'm just pondering new ideas or just the, the creative play. Because, you know, this is, this is art and it's also business. It's both these things. And um, each sort of threatens the other sometimes. So you have to be careful. At least that's what I'm finding out. Well, I'm not going to apologize for inviting you here. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, this is delightful also, you know. Um, so uh, we, you mentioned social media and everyone, by everyone, I mean me, talks about <laughs> social media. Yes. <laughs> social media is like a water cooler for authors. You know, I work from home and I find that when I can take a break and go on Twitter for 10 minutes or whatever it is, that's a sort of fun way to interact with people and feel like I'm not just in a room by myself in my pajamas all day, which I kind of am a lot. <laughs> the truth um, comes out. Yes, I'm not. I am in pajamas right now. Um, <laughs> the flip side, of course, is that as easy as it is, it is to connect with people on social media, it also means that you're also connecting into a lot of drama. It means that sometimes you feel like you know people better than you do and vice versa. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What role do friendship and community play in your writing life? And um, like, how does social media work with that? Yeah. All right. So friendship and community is huge. Um, and so when I think of community, I, I certainly think of my fellow kid, kid lit authors. So um, dear friends that I'm, that I talk to all the time. Um, I'm just thinking immediately of my friend, Lamar Giles, Lamar and I talk on the phone several times a week, even if it's just 10 minutes, Hey, what's going on? We just touch base. We we're a good sounding board. We tell each other the things that we can't, you know, say out into the big wide world. Right. (laughs) So you need people like that in your life. The people who understand the craziness of this 
business, the, the good moments and the soul crushing moments that will happen at every single point of your career, they do not stop happening. Um, and that feels essential to me. I don't know how I do it without the friends. I think community also, um, of Latino authors, Latinx authors in this country, we're, you know, I want to say, sadly, we're still a small group, but growing. Mm. Um, and when a lot of us know each other and I love seeing their work. I love hearing, you know, their new titles coming out and where they are. And I, I tune in and listen to their, um, Oh, their podcasts, their stuff, just to the extent that I can. The only thing I don't do really for anybody, and that's a whole other story, is that I don't blurb books, but I try to support books in every other way that I can. Mm-hmm. Um, because this, this is an exciting business, especially early on when you see your name on a book cover. It's just, it's wow, right? You've, I've arrived, it's all that. But, you know, that's a very transient thing. Mm-hmm. There is... It's bigger than that, right? And so it's bigger because you're in service to children and to children's growing up. You're in service to teachers and to schools and to how we treat young people and families in this country, right? That's what we're writing. And so it's not like being an adult, an author of adult work, right? It's It has this extra layer. And so I look to community uh, to just... To feel less alone, frankly, especially as Latino author, right? So there's there's that, and also because we we're sort of in this shared movement to um, to di- to make more diverse literature available, to um, ensure good representation, to help change people's minds in as positive a way as we can, right? And um, all of that matters. So how social media works on that is that it gives me hives sometimes, right? Because <laughs> I am not, um, you know, I'm, I didn't necessarily grow up with it from day one, right? So I'm, I am less comfortable with social media and, and with um, the, the notion of what's private and what isn't private, like all, all of that stuff. I try to interact. Um, I try to promote other people's stuff, keep people in the loop about my things. But I, what I don't like to do is engage in, in real drama on Twitter, even though I think Twitter has been an amazing vehicle for people who haven't been listened to in the past by any means. Um, oh, yeah. It has given us a platform, a way to talk about the difficult things and force conversations that people would rather sweep under the rug. And for that, I'm grateful. But I personally like to engage people on difficult topics in person. And when I have more time to have lengthier conversations and well, deeper there's definitely conversations. a nuance that is lost on Twitter. Let's put it that way. Yeah, there is. I mean, I think it's there are positives and negatives, but I, I mean, I think we each have to come to it with our own comfort, right. And what our strengths are and so on. So I try to use it to promote, um, positive examples of books and people and lives and issues. Um, and then I save the harder conversations that I want to have with people when they invite me to their conference, when they ask me 
uncomfortable question when I have to share uncomfortable news. You know, mm. I do that、um, in person because I think in person they can see they can see me as as the person and not as the their antagonist.、Right. I I feel like I have a better chance of keeping them at the table、um, and slowly. Engaging them in more thoughtful change, and that's the long game of that. And I'm always about the long game.、Um, I find so ever since I was like just a bookseller before I was ever an agent, I was on social media, and、um, I I've probably told this story before, but once I. Wrote a really funny, hilarious review of a book. Oh, <laughs> it was so mean. It was scathing, but it was、oh. also just like, "Rayo, I was having fun,、yeah. and I got so many hits. Everybody loved it. It was so funny."、Mm. And then I went to a fancy lunch thrown by the publisher,、mm. and I was sat next to the author. Oh goodness! And she a hundred percent knew who I was. Oh, I'm. And it was awful. Yeah. yeah. So, um. So since that time, when I was a baby <laughs> bookseller, I've always felt like my little mantra is that I'm trying to sell books, not unsell them. Yeah. So if I love a book, or if I love an author, or if I love an idea,、yeah. I try to promote it.、Yeah. And if I don't, I can probably hold my peace about that. Yeah.、Um, or you know, talk about it in private. Right. Or. Whatever the case may be, but that's you know my philosophy, and I don't think that everyone needs to be like me. But that's just me, right? Yeah, I know.、Um, I think we all come to our formula, right? We all come、yeah. to the thing that we're really good at, and I think some people actually are really good at having conver- hard conversations on Twitter. I've seen it. Where, oh yeah, I'm like, yeah, you know what? That's a really smart post. I love it.、Um, And so I, I can boost those people, <laughs> you know. But, I just can't be that person. I'm too awkward or something. I don't、yeah. know. It's it's not my thing. I do. I try to keep up on on top of what's going on, but I um, yeah, I'm I'm much better in person. I think. Yeah, and for me too, because I represent people. Yeah. I don't want anyone to think that if I am <laughs> saying something or agreeing with something or whatever. That I'm suddenly putting words in my authors' mouths、yeah. or something like、yeah. that. Like I don't want people to conflate that. So、yeah. it's hard. It, like, that you see,、like、these are the business things, right? And and the business thing in a changing business model,、mm-hmm. and that and change is hard, right? It's always been hard, no matter what you're trying to change. You know, even if you're changing your underwear for goodness' sakes, right? It's hard. <laughs> so the thing is, we have to be. From from my perspective, we have to have so much grace, right, in terms of how we engage each other、um, to to get the kind of change that we're hoping for, and that we want, and that we deserve. And, oh, and speaking deserve. of, <laughs> but speaking of、um, selling books,、yeah. so you mentioned Lamar, so I will be happy to. Put links to his new book,、yes! Spins. Oh my gosh, I'm I'm about halfway through. I love this book. I I'm a big fan of it as a as a friend, but I'm also I'm a, a fan of his writing. But Spin is really good. It's got me on the edge of my seat. I 
I don't know how he does it, but I, I love this one. So what, what do you want to say about Lamar? Well, I just wanted to ask if you had any other names that I should definitely be linking to favorite books or authors that oh, you need to yeah. pimp right now. All right. So Liliam Rivera's Dealing in Dreams. I love Liliam's work. She's, she's terrific. So um, YA. Um, and I know Elizabeth Acevedo's new one. I have the arc. I have not Ooh. had a chance. It's with the fire on high, but I love Elizabeth's voice. She's just remarkable. Then I read a middle grade, which is just, I just finished it this morning. It's called Emmy in the Key of Code. Oh, yes. Yeah, by Amy. Um, oh, my gosh. Lucido. Yes, Lucido. Thank you. I, I just drew a blank. Sorry, Amy Lucido. Um, but, uh, <laughs> I loved it because, all right, it's a novel in verse. Okay, I like novel in verse. I don't adore them, but I do like them. But here's what I really loved about this. So this is a girl whose parents are musical. They're art, uh, they're musical geniuses. One's an opera singer, another is a pianist in the symphony, and she has zero musical talent. <laughs> and, mm-hmm. and, oh gosh, how terrible that is. But she discovers a talent. Um, she moves to from Wisconsin to California and she discovers a talent in coding computers. And so you get to experience the artistry of coding. Mm. And so computers and mathematics as the artful and the beautiful, like if you go all the way to the extreme of science and math, it becomes art again. Right. Mm. And that's where this book is. And it's so interesting. I thought she captured middle grade voice really well. I did find the math a little challenging, I got to say. But, um, you know, <laughs> well, it's been a long time since you were in middle grade. Oh, my <laughs> gosh. Oh, my gosh. But I have to say, if I were in middle school now and uh, they had all these coding and I had access to all these um, coding possibilities and all these maker spaces, that's totally where I would be. I used to love, there is not a glue stick I have met that I didn't love. I, <laughs> I loved every project I ever made, slippers out of uh, old tissue boxes, you name it. I made it and I loved that stuff. I think I could easily see the kind of kid I would be now. Cool. So do you have time for a couple of reader questions? Yeah, sure. Okay. So first question, what, I guess they're listener questions. I always say reader questions, but I don't know why. (laughs) Anyway, they are readers of yours and they're listeners of mine. Okay. Uh, What advice do you have for someone awaiting their debut release release? Aside from working on other projects in the meantime, what should I be doing and what is the best way for a new author to grow their career? Yeah. Okay. So a couple of things. Certainly, you're right. The first thing is, of course, keep writing. Uh, Try to get your mind off of the ticking clock of when your book is coming out. I would say um, that nothing, absolutely nothing substitutes craft. You have to keep pushing yourself in terms of being, you know, trying new things, exploring new things, sharpening your skills. So, you know, continue that journey. Don't, don't stop learning. Um, there is a space now for you to really think about the professional side of your career. So what does your website look like? What, how are you interacting with readers? How are you, you know, what, what is the public face that you've got? And it, I think it, it's in your best interest to ask yourself questions like when people think of my name, right. And my work, what do I want them to think of? What are the, what are the associations I want? 
um, that them to have to make. And are you aligning your actions with your intentions? So if it matters to you, let's say in my case, it, it matters to me, Latino youth and, and um, reading and access and so on, that really matters to me. So what is it that I'm doing in my life and my professional life that also supports that aside from just writing books that are geared to or interesting to that audience, what else am I doing so that I'm not, you're going to be called on to do a million things, right? You'll be invited to lots of different things, but one way that you can pick is are, do these things align with the things that are most important to me as an author and as a person? And that is just, you know, sitting down and really asking yourself hard questions and writing them down. And then I think just connection, making connection with other authors, getting to know their work, meeting them um, at conferences when they come to your city for your book festivals. Go introduce yourself, um, watch them on panels, see see how that goes, because soon enough, you know, with some luck, you'll be there. Um and you're going to have to step into that role, whether you're an introvert or not, right? You're going to have some portion of that is going to be in your life. And I don't think, I mean, it's part of, <laughs> part of the joy is in self-promote, uh, in like, a lot of people can't stand self-promotion, let's put it that way. Mm-hmm. And that's fair. Yeah. But promoting other people is a joy. Yeah. Promoting your friends is fantastic. Yeah. And I think that most people will turnabout when it's the when it's your turn they'll show up at your bookstore event um and be supportive and all that stuff and you want to have people that you know their faces in the crowd when you're new it's true and there is all by yourself there is a joy of um watching someone who is a debut novelist and you promote their book and then suddenly you know it's it's a really fun thing and it comes back to you i i it comes back to you in subtle ways but often in goodwill which is really nice. It's just really, really nice to have good relationships, not have beefs with people, but have good relationships with people. So next question. I have a couple of books out, but nothing new under contract yet. The first book did fine, but it didn't set the world on fire. I'm feeling a bit of sophomore slump. Have you ever been through a patch where things were not selling or forward momentum was was not happening? Oh, and how do you push through that? Oh, God, yes. Um, so my second YA novel, The Girl Who Could Silence the Wind, I, I mean, I spent years trying to write that thing. I had to rewrite it. I wrote it for a long time without Kate offering a contract on it. We just did it, you know, speculatively to see if, if I could get it to the place that she'd be interested in buying it. Um it was killing me. It was absolutely killing me. So what I did um, in the process in that book's publishing journey is that I turned to writing a picture book. I had never written a picture book. I didn't know the first thing about writing a picture book, which I don't recommend as a strategy, but that is what I did. And, um, and that was the book that really, I think, started to put me on the map because my first book is now out of print. Milagros is is gone. It's out of print. It came out of Henry Holt. And then I was writing the second one and that my agent turned down. She said, Oh, it's kind of terrible. You know, like, it was, <laughs> like ah! and it was awful feeling. I was feeling like a failure. I was, I was feeling like, well, maybe that this first book was just like an accident. Right. Mm-hmm. But then the Aisa got the Ezra Jack Keats award and which turned eyes to my work. And it gave me the confidence somehow, the relief and the rest 
to be able to come back to the girl who could silence the wind and really bring it, bring it home. It's still, it, of all my books, it's a book that hasn't earned out. Um, it's the least successful, I think, sales wise of my book, but it's the book that I learned the most from. Um, I learned how to persevere through not knowing what to do with a manuscript. Um, I, I love the story. The people who love the story really love it. And so Mm. I don't know. I just, it's a sentimental favorite for me. I learned a lot um, about how to persevere when you feel like you can't do it. And you're going to be told no an awful lot um, in this business. And you're going to see, and and look, right now I I wrote Medici Suarez. It did really well. There is no guarantee that my next book will not be a flop. And that's the nature of this business. You can fail at any point in it and you can succeed at any point in this career. So I think take a rest, write something else and something new, um, cross pollinate, like immerse yourself in other art forms to sort of Mm -hmm. get those creative channels open again. Um, and, and move forward, like just with hope, I think, because there's, there's no guarantee. And that, and that uncertainty won't change ever. So you have to get at one with it, really. Thank you. That was lovely. So uh, I ask every guest the classic question, what are you obsessed with? It does not have to be bookish, but it can be. So while you're cogitating about your obsession, I will tell you mine. Okay. Because I have two this week. <laughs> Mm. you can have two if you want to okay Okay. so they're both tv shows they're both on netflix spoiler alert what i do when i'm not at work is i watch like two hours of netflix a day (laughs) so (laughs) (laughs) so uh, first of all the tv show shits creek the first four seasons are on netflix i did not watch it before because i did not like the title yeah and I didn't really stop to look at the amazing cast, which includes Catherine O'Hara and Eugene Levy. If you're old enough, you will recognize much of the cast from SCTV. <laughs> um, most of the listeners are probably not old enough, but whatever. Um, Eugene Levy does more comedy with his eyebrows than most people are able to do with their whole body. <laughs> so the story is about the Rose family. They're formerly billionaires, and now they live in squalor in a weird motel in a town full of, well, weirdos. The whole ensemble has fantastic chemistry, and each of the four main characters is, on on paper, deeply unlikable for a host of reasons. And yet, I'm utterly in love with all of them. The first two seasons are fun and very funny. The third season is simply sublime. And I hear it gets better and better. (laughs) I'm going to have to tune in now. Look what you've done. You have now... Turned me into a Netflix addict. You got to. Um, I watch one episode a day. I meet them out. <laughs> I'm like <laughs> obsessed because I don't want it to end. And there's only four seasons anyway. Uh, there is a fifth season playing now, but it's not on Netflix yet. Okay. So the second one is a revisit of an old obsession. So last year at some point, uh, one of my obsessions was the reboot of One Day at a Time on Netflix. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Uh-huh. I so get the it. Third season, <laughs> third season dropped recently. Can I say it's a must-watch TV, and I think it's a must-watch TV for middle-grade writers yeah. in particular. Like, if you liked Mercy Suarez, for example, you should watch One Day at a Time. Yeah, um, It's about a Cuban-American family. It tackles subjects that you might expect, like culture clashes, immigration. But also, one of the characters is a non-binary teenager 
all the attendant things to do with that, like pronouns and politics and dating, are taken on with humor and care and love. They weave in real problems like toxic masculinity and systemic racism and PTSD without ever becoming polemic. They look at multiple sides of an issue from multiple generations and frames of reference, and the result is really transcendent. Pretty much every episode makes me laugh aloud and cry at some point. The episode with um, Elena's quinceanera made me <laughs> cry my face off. Yeah, It's so beautiful. Oh my God, I'm getting emotional. Anyway, the series is in danger of cancellation. Ah! So I implore you to watch this. Okay. Also, Rita Moreno plays the grandmother. She's a national treasure. Yeah. And a lot of people complain about the laugh track. Guess what? It's a live studio audience. Not a laugh <laughs> I watched, I started to watch that show. Oh my gosh. It had to be a couple of years ago because mostly on the weight of Rita Moreno, right? Who is a national treasure. Exactly. She's hilarious. She commands every scene. Uh, she's just amazing. But yeah, I, I will have to agree with you. That's a very good obsession to have. That is a very, very good obsession to have. <laughs> and I feel like, again, it just has really found its feet. It gets stronger and stronger. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. Meg Medina, what are you obsessed with? <laughs> well, my obsessions are um, not as fun as that. All right. So, all right. So I have, I have three sort of mini obsessions. The okay. first is that I am currently in search of the perfect recipe for tamales. Here's mm. the problem. My mother and my aunt used to make them, uh, not the Aisa Tiajera, who's no longer living, but anyway, they used to make the best tamales ever. They were delicious. I love them. And so when my mom passed, my Tiaisa is still living. And so she said, I said, let's, let's make tamales. Let's just make them. And we tried to make them and they're terrible. Every time I'm following the recipe and it's just, they're watery. They don't come together well. So recently at Hamlin University, I was giving a lecture and one of the people in the audience is a cookbook editor. And she comes mm. down and she says, I want to tell you about the tamales. I said, what? She said, you have to let the cornmeal soak up in the pot before you make the thing. So I'm about to try that this week before I go on the road. I'm going to see if I can master the art of tamales because I love them. I miss them and I can't make them. They're watery. And I just feel like, you know, they're just well, those things you have to know how to make. I feel like though you need more than one set of hands and you need a whole day. <laughs> I do. To like make a real tamale. My mother used to make them and it was yeah. a whole day process yeah. that was amazing, but it was like multiple people had to be involved and multiple hours. Yes. I think you should throw a tamale party. <laughs> yes. That would be yes. great. I'll come. I'll go, I'll go to where you are. <laughs> okay. All right. Here's okay. My next so what are your obsession. other next mini obsessions? Okay. My mini, my mini obsession, I'm waiting patiently, the marvelous Mrs. Maisel, mm. um, because I am obsessed with the character of Susie Meyerson, um, yes. played by Alex Bornstein. Um, and you, of course, know the setup, this 1950s um, woman, she's married to this guy who's got aspiring to be a comedian but it turns out that he's a crappy comedian and she's really hysterically funny and so she behind her family's back goes um and develops this career and Susie is her very grouchy <laughs> uh, Greenwich Village manager who doesn't know what she's doing but sort of does I don't know there's something about that character that is so rich and also 
um, the man who plays um, her dad, Tony Sal. It's a Salhoub, I think is how he'd say it, but a, he plays Abe Weisman and he's just, I, he's so layered. That's what I love about this series. And really any series that I get hooked on, it's, it's how layered are the characters and um, they're unexpected and they're hilarious. And I don't know, I, I binge watched both seasons and now I'm just waiting. To, this is the bad part of binge watching right? <laughs> that you, then you have this long desert of a wait until you get more. There was something beautiful about seeing something every week because you just, just as you said, you get a little bit every week, but I don't have that discipline. It's like how I eat Girl Scout cookies. <laughs> I can't. I Once they're open, they're gone. That's it. That's how that's going to work. Yeah, well, at least the sleeve is gone. Then you can work on the next thing. <laughs> <laughs> Don't open the sleeve. That's the secret. <laughs> the oh, other uh, thing about Mrs. Maisel, obviously, is that the costumes are amazing. Oh, my gosh. Yes. I want the wardrobe. I want that wardrobe. Um, so I understand you have a third mini obsession. Though. Yes. It, and it is always my dog, Hugo. Um, I just adore this dog. We got him as a puppy. He's a little black. He's a black lab and Dalmatian mix. He was a litter of nine. Um, and we keep in touch all the people who adopted uh, his litter mates. And so just watching all of them grow and he's just funny. So I just, I don't know how to describe it. I just really love this dog. It's not natural. I don't know. No, it is. <laughs> Dogs are the best. <laughs> yes. So I, I walk with him. I talk with him. It's just crazy. It, I'm, I become really like paranoid about him. I love my dog too. And I find that if she's napping really hard, sometimes I will make sure she's still breathing because I'm scared. <laughs> how old is she? Um, Like 10. I mean, she's not yeah. terribly old. Yeah. I just... I've always done that because I get like really emotional about her. <laughs> yeah, no. Anyway, if you send me a picture of Hugo, I will put him up in the show. Notes. Yes, I will send you a picture of Hugo. I have many, as you might imagine. <laughs> I do. I do. I love him. He's um, He is like a pill for to calm me down. All I have to do is take him on a walk. In fact, when I got news that I had won the Newberry, I had 45 minutes of quiet time before they were going to announce it, right? So I went for a walk with Hugo. That's where I was before I sat down to watch the webcast. Um, and it was it was beautiful. It was only me and this dog with the secret. <laughs> yeah. Well, Meg Medina, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. I love this podcast and it's been such an honor to be on there with you. Oh, well, thank you very much. And, um, and I'll see you on the internet. Yeah, I'll see you around. Take care. Thanks so much to my guest, the ever gracious and lovely Meg Medina. And thank you for listening. If you're a regular listener, you'll know that the Literati cast has a Patreon. If you throw in a buck, you just might win books, including a copy of Meg's book, Mercy Suarez Changes Gears, that we talked about today. A heads up that I've changed the system over the Patreon. I had been picking names randomly from all the patrons. But it occurred to me, after way too long of doing this, that some people might actually already have a given book or may not want it or whatever. So I'm changing things up. Now each month, there will be a patrons-only post about the giveaway, and any patron who wants it can put their name down, and I will choose amongst the folks that actually want that book. So it's like an opt-in system rather than a random surprise system. <laughs> also, in the interest of full disclosure... I pretty much break even doing this podcast. The Patreon does not give me a source of income. 
but it does pay for the hosting, producing, and other related fees. That being said, any extra money I have received, I've channeled into a special fund, which this year let me donate a scholarship to the Quelly Color of Children's Literature Conference for a marginalized creator that might not otherwise have been able to attend. So thank you. When you contribute to the Patreon, you're helping me continue to be able to do this podcast, and you're helping to give authors a boost as well. Anyway, you can find the Patreon at patreon.com slash literaticat. There will be links to all the books Meg and I talked about in the show notes on my website, jenniferlofrin.com slash literaticast. And if you like the podcast and are moved to leave a review on Apple Podcasts uh, or your podcatcher of choice, please do so. More reviews help folks find the show. Thanks so much for listening and see you next time.